Please turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 21. This will be our Old Testament reading. Here in the days of Elijah and the notorious King Ahab and his wife Jezebel. First Kings 21. Now Naboth the Jezreelite had a vineyard in Jezreel beside the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. And after this, Ahab said to Naboth, Give me your vineyard that I may have it for a vegetable garden, because it is near my house, and I will give you a better vineyard for it. For if it seems good to you, I will give you its, or if it's, it seems good to you, I will give you its value in money. But Naboth said to Ahab, The Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. And Ahab went into the house, into his house, vexed and sullen because of what Naboth the Jezreelite had said to him. For he had said, I will not give you the inheritance of my fathers. And he lay down on his bed and turned away his face and would eat no food. But Jezebel, his wife, came to him and said to him, Why is your spirit so vexed that you eat no food? And he said to her, Because I spoke to Naboth the Jezreelite and said to him, Give me your vineyard for money, or else, if it please you, I will give you another vineyard for it. And he answered, I will not give you my vineyard. And Jezebel, his wife, said to him, Do you now govern Israel? Arise and eat bread, and let your heart be cheerful. I will give you the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite. So she wrote letters in Ahab's name and sealed them with his seal. And she sent the letters to the elders and the leaders who lived with Naboth in his city. And she wrote in the letters, Proclaim a fast, and set Naboth at the head of the people, and set two worthless men opposite him, and let them bring a charge against him, saying, You have cursed God and the king. Then take him out and stone him to death. And the men of his city The elders and the leaders who lived in his city did as Jezebel sent word to them. As it was written in the letters that she had sent to them, they proclaimed a fast and set Naboth at the head of the people. And the two worthless men came in and sat opposite him. And the worthless men brought a charge against Naboth in the presence of the people, saying, Naboth cursed God and the king. So they took him outside the city and stoned him to death with stones. And they sent to Jezebel, saying, Naboth has been stoned. He is dead. Please turn with me now to Acts chapter 6. We will continue our progress through this book with verse 8. To the end of the chapter. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians, and of the Alexandrians, and of those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses 
and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law, for we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Amen. You may be seated. It's interesting how different people have uh, very different perceptions of what's normal. My, my dad uh, loves banana and mayonnaise sandwiches. And so we grew up eating banana and mayonnaise sandwiches. But um, for a lot of people, that just does not sound normal, like it was in my family. Obviously, that's a very, very trivial example. Um, there are much more significant examples that you can experience uh, when you travel. Um, different things seem normal in different places as well as when you study history. So different things seem normal at different times. The point is, not everything that we think or feel is normal turns out really to be normal in the grand scheme of things, in the broader sweep of human experience, or very often in the eyes of God. It's the ultimate norm that any idea of normal should be accountable to. Kind of besides the point. But one thing we can sometimes take for granted is that, um, that it's somehow normal for the church to be able to just operate pretty much as we please with very, very little concern for our lives or our livelihoods or the safety of our families. Uh, it's a great gift. It's a great joy to be able to have that opportunity, that freedom. It's a good thing. That um, that's the the culture that has um, brought us to this point of being able to worship freely. But there can be a problem here, where uh, many Christians can get a, a very strong sense that it's also normal that it, that it's that it's to be expected even for Christians generally to kind of have the upper hand in public life, um, to have uh, respect uh, from the people around us, to have influence over the people around us. And when that becomes our expectation, when that becomes our idea of what normal is, and then we begin not only to think it's normal, begin to feel entitled to it, like this is the way it must be, then when that expectation gets challenged, we can become very, very alarmed, and we can think, "This, this isn't normal. There's something wrong. We've got to get that respect back. We've got to get that influence back. And this is one of the many reasons that studying church history is so important, beginning with the book of Acts, which is the, kind of the first chapter of at least New Testament church history. Arguably, Genesis 1 is the beginning of church history, but you know what I mean. Um, so Luke um, impresses on us throughout this book, really that, that opposition, that that marginalization, that this violent antagonism have actually been more than the norm for the church's life from the very beginning. 
And so as we take a couple of weeks now to consider the life and the death of Stephen, I hope it will challenge us to maybe reevaluate a little bit what we think of as normal and to ask ourselves a very important question, what am I prepared to sacrifice for the gospel that I believe, for the Christ that I love, if I were actually called upon to do that? So let's look at this passage this morning in three parts. The first one will be grace and power, verses 8 to 10. The second will be false witnesses, verses 11 to 14. And then last, the face of an angel, verse 15. Grace and power, false witnesses, and the face of an angel. All right, first, uh, grace and power. So um, Stephen says, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Remember what we saw last time, uh, what kind of men, what kind of men did the apostles instruct the church to look for, to choose, to take the lead in caring for the church's widows? Well, the answer is it was to be men of good repute, full of the, of the spirit and of wisdom. So again, as we talked about last time, all of the qualifications laid out in the Bible for leadership in the church are first and foremost about character. They are about godliness uh, more than anything else. And so it's interesting that in verse 5, when those seven uh, brand new servant leaders are, are named one by one, Stephen is singled out at the beginning of the list as a man, it says, full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. And so Stephen, in particular, exemplifies that that character that the apostles said to look for. Stephen, in other words, was a godly man, a man who deeply trusted Christ, he was full of faith, and who was becoming deeply like Christ in his speech, in his choices, in the ways that he served others. He was full of the Holy Spirit. So now as Stephen then embarks on his new kind of formal ordained service, um, notice how his impact extends beyond the sort of formal job description that he got of uh, what he was ordained to do to care for these, these Hellenistic widows. His, uh, Stephen's um, servant leadership in mercy, in mercy ministry to these vulnerable people within the church ends up being accompanied by something else. He was doing, it says, great wonders and signs among the people. So far, we've only heard of the apostles, the twelve, doing great wonders and signs, specifically them. And, and you remember that those wonders and signs, the apostles, were God's way of authenticating their message and their ministry to the people of Jerusalem. Those miracles were kind of Christ's stamp of approval on what the apostles were teaching and what they were doing. It's like Christ was saying, listen to these men. These are trustworthy witnesses. You can see it through these miraculous things that I'm empowering them to do. You can see that they are telling the truth. But now what's happening is it's not just the apostles, it's Stephen as well. This, this newly ordained deacon, or at least maybe proto-deacon, is doing these supernatural things um, as well. And why is that? Well, it's because verse 8 says he was full of grace and power. Remember that grace, what does grace mean? Grace is that undeserved favor of God. This is not Stephen's personal power. 
uh, as though Stephen is some kind of superhero. This is God's power. And more specifically, it's Christ's power through the Holy Spirit indwelling Stephen and anointing and empowering Stephen in a special way, working through Stephen's hands. This is Christ proving to the people of Jerusalem that this man, Stephen, is someone you can trust and that someone you should listen to. Last time we talked about how we must never compartmentalize uh, mercy ministry um, or service of various kinds as kind of this separate, disconnected part of the church's work. Now, the church's service and love to helping, um, service and love to hurting and helpless people is actually part of the way that the Lord vindicates, authenticates the church's message. Remember John 13, we talked about it last time. By this all people will know that you are my disciples. If you have love for one another, that's how they're going to know. And so as the gospel goes out in word, we're also responsible to show that gospel in action. Um, we can almost say we're, it's to, to illustrate. We're illustrating the grace of, that God freely gave to us as we give ourselves and what belongs to us to others. You remember how last week's passage ended, how right after the ordination of those seven deacons, what happened? Well, the word of God, it said, continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And so living out the gospel illustrates and authenticates the message of the gospel. Now, in Stephen's case... Um, that included these miraculous signs and wonders. Of course, that was a, a special, specific way that God was acting at this particular time and place to lay the foundation for the church in that first apostolic generation. But listen to this. The church's work of compassion today and care today, although it is not accompanied by signs and wonders, these miraculous, uh, dramatic um, things, the church's work of compassion and care is still a supernatural work. It is still a work of God, accomplished by the power of God. We should, and so that means that as we get involved in mercy ministry, what should we expect as a church? We should expect the grace and power of Christ to be at work through us and in us, for Christ himself from heaven to be supernaturally, through the Holy Spirit, using us to demonstrate the truth and the authenticity of the good news about Christ by the way that we love and serve one another. And that's going to happen by his grace, his undeserved favor upon us. It's going to happen by his strength as he makes us, like Stephen, full of grace and power. That's what we want to be, isn't it? That's what we want Resurrection OPC to be in this state college community. We want to be full of grace and power that comes from the Lord Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit. That's what we should be praying for. He would give us that grace. He would give us that power that comes only from Him. So we seek to live it out in our service. Now, if uh, a church succeeds in doing that, if that's the way the church really learns to live, then... You might expect that uh, people looking on from outside would say, wow, that's awesome. Look at these people. Look at these people living out their faith. They're being consistent. Um, look at all of this grace and power 
as being demonstrated through their service. Of course, many times the world doesn't see that happening at all. Uh, And in fact, sometimes the opposition that we face um, is not because we're so Christ-like. It's the opposite. It's because outsiders actually correctly sense some degree of hypocrisy, or at least inconsistency, saying one thing and doing another. In that case, it's really our own fault um, when people point that out and people dismiss us or scorn us, and it brings dishonor on the name of Christ. And we can't call that persecution as much as we might like to um, take that cover. But the example of Stephen shows, what what this shows is that even if we do everything right, even if we are consistent, even if we are robustly living out this service that's consistent with the gospel, it illustrates the gospel, there is still no guarantee that outsiders are, are going to just fall in love with the church and be won over. On the contrary, the opposite happens to Stephen. It says, Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians and those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. Now, it's very interesting. Um, If these are Jewish people, but they're from Cyrene and Alexandria and Cilicia and Asia, those are places all around the Mediterranean world, and that puts them in the category of Hellenists. And we talked about Hellenists last time. It was the Hellenistic widows who were being neglected. The Greek-speaking Jews, that's what the Hellenists are. These Jews who have family backgrounds in other parts of the Greek-speaking Mediterranean world, uh, not in Jerusalem. And uh, many people have observed that when the church chose the seven to serve the Hellenistic widows, um, they seem to have chosen uh, Hellenistic deacons, kind of as a common sense measure. These guys are going to be most effective at at communicating and and caring for these Greek-speaking women. Um, The names of the seven are Greek-sounding names. They're not Hebrew-sounding names. And so it's likely that Stephen himself was a Hellenist. And um, and then the focus of his ministry was with make sure that the Hellenistic people were getting taken care of. Well, now it turns out that the opposition is also coming from that kind of cultural background. It's coming from the Hellenists, these Greek background Jews. And they are now adding their voices to the growing opposition that started with the Jerusalem elite. Remember chapter 3 and so on? It was the, 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 the religious elite of Jerusalem who were arresting and harassing the apostles. But now it's the Hellenists, these uh, synagogues from people from synagogues around the Greek-speaking world who also are starting to oppose the church. But I love what verse 10 says about this opposition. It says, But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. They disputed with him. They tried to argue against him, but they could not beat him with mere argument. And why was that? It was because he was telling the truth. Right? And so what they couldn't do in open debate, that was futile, um, they decided to do instead in a much more underhanded way. That's the second point this morning. False witnesses. Uh, says, then they secretly instigated men who said, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. What does that remind you of? For one thing, it reminds me of our Old Testament reading earlier, where Jezebel tells Ahab, you want Naboth's vineyard? Well, you're the king. Your might makes you right. It doesn't matter that Naboth is actually the righteous one trying to follow God's law by not selling to you. All you have to do is get some people to falsely accuse him of a capital crime, and then your problem is solved. So it's, it's not very good company that these people are in 
Uh, you don't want to be associated with Ahab and Jezebel, but there's, I think, a connection there. But it's not just Ahab and Jezebel. There's a much more recent frame of reference, and that's Matthew 26, the trial of Jesus. It says the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus, that they might put him to death. It was about Jesus that two men came forward, and they said, this man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. And you see that charge is being repeated here against Stephen. They're very similar um, here in verse 13. They set up false witnesses against Stephen who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place in the law, for we've heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And so what we're to see here is that Stephen is suffering in much the same way that Jesus suffered before him. So the opposition, that Steve, of, to, the opposition to Stephen is taking the same shape as the opposition to Jesus. And that's important. Remember how many times I've said in Acts that all the wonderful things that have happened, all the great successes of the church, those are showing us Christ acting from his heavenly throne. Remember that that book title, The Acts of the Risen Lord Jesus. That's what is being described here. This is the risen and ascended Christ reigning over, acting through his church on earth. But that connection between the church and our Lord uh, isn't, just about the church's successes, not just about the church's displays of power. It is also at work equally in the church's suffering, in the church's weakness, when it looks like the church is losing, as it so often does in history. Why is that? Well, it's because God's people are sharing in the sufferings of our Savior. Our life is taking the shape of his life and death. And that's how we need to read the history of Stephen's martyrdom here. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 10, a disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It's enough for the disciple to be like his teacher, a servant like his master, because if they've called the master of the house uh, Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? Stephen's being maligned because he's part of the household of Jesus. So are you. This gets back to the idea of what we perceive as normal for the Christian life and for the church. If we think that normal is the world just loving us and applauding us and telling us how great we are, then we're going to get very confused by suffering and opposition when it happens. Um, thinking maybe we're doing something wrong because this is happening. Worse yet, we may start adjusting our message and our mission Because what we're really aiming at is that reaction that we think we ought to be getting from the world that we feel entitled to. Let's aim for that power and influence and widespread approval. That's what we've got to preserve. That's the goal, even if it means changing the message, changing the mission. It's not so. We're not entitled to power or influence or widespread approval. Christ never promised us that. We've been promised Christ's approval when we speak and operate according to his word. And he's given us very clear notice ahead of time that when we're conducting ourselves in a way that pleases him, when we're speaking the truth in love, the world, frankly, is going to hate us. That's what's really normal for the church. It's that fierce, focused, forceful, opposition 
that Stephen's facing here and that the faithful church has experienced all through its history down through the ages. Now, next time we're going to dive into uh, Stephen's long speech in chapter 7, responding to the false charges these false witnesses are bringing. Um, charges speaking blasphemous words against Moses and God, speaking against the temple and the law. None of them are true. Uh, but before that speech begins, Luke gives us this remarkable uh, visual description of Stephen's physical appearance as he prepares to give that defense. It's a little bit mysterious. It says, And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of of an angel. Now, I'm not really sure I can visualize or help you to visualize exactly what Luke is trying to picture there. Uh, was it a, a supernatural radiance, like light shining from his face, maybe? Um, Revelation, there's, John describes an angel whose face was like the sun, that radiance shining out. Um, in this context, it, it makes you think maybe even of the shining of the face of Moses, a reflection of the glory of God as he's been in God's presence, uh, which was one of the signs that Moses was a true prophet. Why? Because he'd been meeting face to face with God. Or is this maybe figurative? Is it perhaps describing his facial expression? Uh, we might think of Ecclesiastes 8 verse 1, which says, A man's wisdom makes his face shine, and the hardness of his face is, is changed. Stephen, of course, you know, was a man full of wisdom. And that wisdom here, here is being put to the test. And the Lord is about to give him the ability to speak once more with grace and power, verse 8, with wisdom and the Spirit, verse 10. And this is coming to expression in his face, whether in a supernatural or just an ordinary way. Um, there's cer certainly something supernatural at work in Stephen's heart that's finding expression in his, his appearance. I, can, I think we can definitely say at any rate some things that this description rules out. It rules out an expression of terror, of timidity, of shrinking back in fear from this imposing slate of enemies. As, as everybody looks at Stephen here, they are struck by something about this face that tells them this person is about to speak with the authority of a messenger from God. Because that's what an angel is, right? It's a messenger and servant of God. And that's who Stephen is. He's God's servant. He's God's messenger. And so once again, he's following in the footsteps of his Lord. 1 Timothy 6, uh, Paul's charging Timothy to fight the good fight of faith. You remember this passage? And he says, you remember you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. But in the next verse, he compares that to what Christ did at his trial. He says, Christ Jesus, in his testimony before Pontius Pilate, made the good confession. And so our, when we confess Christ before men, we're in union with Christ who stood and made the good confession before Pilate at his trial. We have this opportunity, when we have an opportunity to speak the truth of God's word, to give an answer or defense for the hope that is within us with gentleness and reverence, 1 Peter 3, we're not at that point speaking on our own authority. We're not there to promote ourselves or even to defend ourselves. What are we there to do? We are Christ's agents. We are there in his name as his servants, as his messengers. And, and so with Stephen, 
uh, we should be able to say with confidence. I love that phrase from Hebrews 13. So we can say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear because what can man do to me? What could they do to Stephen? Well, they could stone him. That's actually quite a lot. They could stone him. And they did stone him. But surely Stephen knew what Jesus had said in Luke 12. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body. And after that, have nothing more that they can do. Nothing more they can do after they take your life. Of course, for us, at the present day, uh, the threat is not likely to be uh, stoning. It's not likely to be a public execution. But you can certainly expect to feel, and increasingly so, the intense, relentless, unforgiving pressure of the frowns and disapproval of the vast mainstream of the culture that we live in if you're living consistently as a Christian and doing that publicly and without holding back. You can expect that what you say, no matter how gently and earnestly you say it, will often regularly be misunderstood, misconstrued to fit a narrative of opposition to Christian faithfulness. But what we need to understand is that that's not abnormal in the big picture of the life of the church. It's not something to be celebrated or or welcomed, and we have opportunity to to seek to preserve um, the the contrary. We we ought to, but my point is what Peter says in 1 Peter 4, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you as though something strange were happening to you. The respect and the acceptance and the admiration of the world are not the usual experience of the faithful church. Again, I feel like I need to put this caveat one more time that We've got to be careful not to use this as an excuse to justify ourselves, to protect ourselves against criticism when we haven't been Christ-like, when we're simply being selfish or arrogant or foolish or, or unskillful, and we're trying to baptize the fallout from that by saying, oh, I'm being persecuted, I'm being persecuted. When, no, not necessarily. You might have brought it upon yourself. But, but Paul does put it very starkly in 2 Timothy 3. When he says, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Comes with the territory. And so I have to ask you then, in light of what you're seeing in Stephen's life here, are you ready for that? Are you ready to stand for Christ, in Christ's name, as his servant, as his messenger, just at the moment when it actually turns out to cost you something? It's easy to grandstand and make our Christian faith wear it on our sleeve when it's just a way of getting it off our chest and when it's not actually going to cost us anything at all. What if it would cost you something? Maybe you you feel you're ready for that. Maybe you feel you aren't. Maybe you're not sure, like an untested soldier who's never been into battle before. He doesn't know himself whether he'll stand or run when he actually faces those live rounds coming at him from the enemy. But the good news for you here from the life of Stephen is that that strength to stand for Christ under pressure, 
is not something that you look inside yourself to find. The way to get to the point that, like Stephen, where, well, like what the hymn says, your hope, your confidence, let nothing shake. Love that line. That doesn't come from within you. It comes from trusting, like Stephen, in Jesus, full of faith, remember? It comes particularly from trusting what Jesus did for you already. When it was Jesus who was the captive, when he was surrounded by enemies, when he was facing perjured testimony against him, and in that moment when Jesus had the opportunity, the very clear opportunity to abandon you and save himself, that's not what he did. Instead, he endured that injustice against him. He laid down his life so that your life could be saved, so that you could be forgiven. And not just forgiven. That's the thing. That's what Stephen's life is showing us here. Stephen's not just a forgiven sinner. Jesus died and rose again for you so that he could fill you with his grace and power. The same grace and power that filled Stephen, so that you might grow in wisdom and spirit. The same wisdom, the same Holy Spirit that Stephen was full of. And that strength to stand for Jesus can only ever come from Jesus who stood there for you and who will always be there with you wherever it is he may call you to stand for him. Okay, so let's pray. Our Father in heaven, so thankful for the courage and clarity of Stephen's witness as he faced these enemies in the name of Christ. Lord, we pray that you would grant us wisdom, you would grant us your spirit, grant us grace and power, grant us courage, so that whatever you call us to face, we would be faithful. As Christ was so faithful on our behalf. And that it's on him that we depend for any of this. We ask all these things in his name. Amen.